We are so thrilled to be partnering with Hinge. Hinge is the dating app designed to be deleted. As you all know, I'm a huge Hinge advocate as I met my partner of almost three years on the app. Even before meeting him, Hinge was always my go-to app because I met more relationship-minded people here and had some great dates. Clearly, I haven't been on the app for a little while, but I re-downloaded it to check out some of the new features. One that stood out to me was the voice prompt, my best friend's take on why you should date me, where your friend can hype you up. Not only does this make the profile creation less daunting, but it's not always easy to see your own green flags. So to test it out, I asked UA some fun prompts to get her take on what I could put if I was dating again. So the first one, how long have we known each other? What was your first impression of me and how has that changed? Julie and I have known each other for almost 10 years. My first impression of Julie was that she's very social, but I've learned that she has a lot more depth to her beyond the social butterfly that she is. My next prompt, what do you think are my green flags? I would say she's deeply loyal. She believes in love, curious mindset, and she is fearlessly ambitious. And then last but not least, what kind of friend am I? Julie is the kind of friend who will always have your back, no matter what. Damn, that feels nice to hear. So download Hinge and try voice prompts today. Then find someone worth deleting the app for. I love wine, but sometimes it can get really expensive, which is why I'm so excited that today's episode is brought to you by Last Bottle Wines. If you don't know, they're a Napa-based online wine shop with a twist. They offer just one hand-picked wine per day until it sells out, which is often an hour's. So new day, new wine, always at incredible prices. We're talking 30 to 70% off retail. And the best part is that there's no subscriptions, no fees, and no minimum purchase. Just a daily email with a really great wine. They're offering Datable listeners 10% off your first order with code Datable. And now is such a great time to join as their marathon sale is coming up on March 28th and 29th. They flip that one day rule on its head and offer back to back deals, which means that wines are only up on the site for a couple minutes at a time and shipping is 100% free. They send us a mini marathon package of some of their favorites and let me tell you, they were delicious. Sign up at lastbottlewines.com and use the code datable and find out why Last Bottle is the most fun way to discover and buy amazing wine. The Dateable Podcast is an insider's look into modern dating that the Huffington Post calls one of the top 10 podcasts about love and sex. On each episode, we'll talk to real daters about everything from sex parties to sex droughts, date fails to diaper fetishes, and first moves to first loves. I'm your host, USU, former dating coach turned dating sociologist. You'll also hear from my co-host and producer, Julie Kraftchik, as we explore this crazy dateable world. Hello, beautiful friends. Welcome to another episode of the Dateable Podcast. We have so much to celebrate on this episode (laughs) because it is our season finale for season 14. Doesn't mean we stop the content. It just means we stop the interviews for now. We can take a little breather. You'll still hear from us, but it's just a wrap up of a nice, beautiful season. But additionally, we're also celebrating Julie's birthday. Oh, my God. (laughs) By the time this airs, you'll already be old. So let's just celebrate (laughs) the fact that you're still not old yet. (laughs) It's all relative. I'm having a real issue with my age this year. 
I don't Why? know. Like I you don't, don't remember know. your age or? No. <laughs> I wish. I wish that was the case. I don't know. And I know I'm not old and I don't want to say that I'm old because I know people would be like, you're not old. Yeah. I'm turning 39, but I mm-hmm. don't know what it is. I just like have this like gut this year mm-hmm. like, feeling of just being a little, I don't know. You know, like sometimes with your birthday, it brings up like, where are you in life? All that stuff. Mm-hmm. But I need to snap out of it and just get into celebratory mode. Yeah, because I'm coming into town yeah. and we're going to party until 10 p.m. Yes, that's how we do I'm it. I'm also like about to do more shots for um, egg freezing. So yeah, yeah it's going to be a real party on my birthday. Well, Starts should tonight. we be there for the shots? <laughs> should we we can listen, do like multiple listen. shots. Julie texted me. It was like, okay, we can hang out on Wednesday. Let's go out to, to dinner. But I have to do shots first. And I'm like, in my mind, I was like, damn, girl, you getting it. <laughs> That's the difference of aging, what shots means to you. Like in my mind, I was just like, oh yeah, this is obvious. And then I had like, to read it a couple times. I was like, are, does she mean she's going to do shots by herself first? And then we can come. I wasn't sure what's happening. But oh I was my like, God. yes, yes, girl. And then you're like, oh no. Oh, those shots. <laughs> Not as exciting, but equally as important. <laughs> So it's gonna funny. be a wild birthday shots it's and gonna shots. be a wild birthday yep no i don't think i should be doing shots shots but i will be supporting you all if you would like to do shots shots oh, no i can't i can't even. i can't do that anymore even outside of thing. this i one of my friends god bless her she has a kid but when she's like off mom duty she is like <laughs> she's ready she's ready and we went to her birthday brunch and i forgot wait at 11 we're doing this yeah Nope, I can't hang like that. I can't do it anymore. I can't do it anymore. But I'm looking forward to your birthday. I think 39 is a really big birthday. It's not the 40 or the 30. It's not really the decades. I think it's the the year before the new decade. I think that's the most important birthday because you get to reflect on this decade, what has been happening, what, what you want to go in to your 40s with. So you have a whole year to figure that shit out. This is very therapeutic because I need a shift. I need to get out of this like, oh, I'm getting older mentality to this celebrating mentality. And you know, the episode we're doing today, UA and I originally were like, oh, we'll save this one for next season. It's going to be a great beginning one. And then we We were, yeah, we're like, we need to air this, actually. We're going to make this the finale. And it's a reminder of, you know, one, why are we even doing what we're doing in the first place? Like, sometimes when we're in the thick of dating, in the parts of dating that maybe aren't as fun, we forget, like, why is it that we need love? And I think the other side of it, too, is it's not just celebrating romantic love. It's celebrating all the love that we have in our lives. And I feel like that's such an important reminder that in society we have such the emphasis on romantic love and we talk about this in the episode you know friendship i feel like friendship has been so essential Mm -hmm. to me for my own growth for just feeling loved and feeling like not lonely in life and feeling like i have people on my side and i can be there for them as well and i think friendship is a very underappreciated form of love and pets i know you feel strongly about pets we go into that very obviously family like there's just so many forms of love and oftentimes you know especially when we're seeking that big love we forget about the rest of the love that's already there I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's been huge for me to realize is that 
love is more than just romantic love. And in case you didn't know, this episode is about love, but also <laughs> why we love. Yeah. And I like that this season, I feel like there's been an underlying theme of getting to the why. Mm -hmm. Why do you date? Why do you love? Why do you have sex? Getting to the why is so important because then it gives us a North Star. For mm -hmm. so long, I think for me, it was just like, I should be in love because society tells me I should be in love. That's when I'm whole. That's when I'm complete. It's not necessarily the case. I realize I want love and I want to love others because it makes me feel like I'm connected to other people mm -hmm. and I'm connected to this earth. And it makes it just makes me feel more present. And so getting to the why is so important. And I think there's something very intriguing about saying like loving, loving things around you, even if it's not a person or a living yeah. thing too, you know, loving, giving love to your plants has shown that your plants grow better, <laughs> because you show that love. But also this idea of like loving the thoughts that come into your head, you know, even negative thoughts, just being like, I appreciate that thought. Mm -hmm. I love that thought. I'm not going to accept the negative thought, but I will accept the positive thought too. So it's like love can be in so many dimensions, not just physical human love. Definitely. And it just relieves so much pressure too. I feel like, you know, mm -hmm. want to even find that one love. But also even when you're in the partnership, like once you actually have found someone to love yeah. and have that romantic love, I hate when people just like drop all their friends the second they yeah. find love. Like that to me, it's just like, why? Was this just a filler until you found love? Right. I don't feel like my friendships, the point is people I can go out with so I can meet guys. Like that's mm -hmm. never been my mentality. And sometimes it's important to have friends that are in the same life stage as you. When I was single, it was good to have single friends just so we could talk and they could understand where I was. But I don't think I'd ever be like, oh, I, I can't hang out with you now because you're not single or like when I was single, oh, my married friends or friends in relationship, I'm not going to hang out with them. Like, I think it's not related to that. It's more of like what bond that you have. And you can learn from people that are in the same stage of life as you, in addition to people who are in different stages of life. And so for everyone listening, you can probably guess why we want this as our season finale, because it's <laughs> making me feel warm and fuzzy and also just ready for the rest of the summer. Just, yes. you know, summer they show is the time for love. Again, doesn't have to be romantic love, but how can we activate more of those love muscles inside of us? And our guest today, Anna, is going to show us how we can activate more of that love. Totally. I really believe if you are single... If you are activating all the other love in your life and you have a full life, that doesn't mean that you can't want that partner. It's not distracting yeah. from that. But it makes dating just so much more enjoyable when you're like... It really does. It really does. Like for me, I know when I kind of made this boundary, essentially, I don't love that word boundary, but it is a boundary that I, you know, made this... I never went on dates on Friday nights. That was always like my thing when I was like first meeting people. Mm -hmm. I saved that for a night out with friends because I knew that like I needed that. Like I needed that nourishment that that love gave me, right? Mm -hmm. And I knew if I was just like going on date after date and they weren't working out, like, I would just like feel lonely and like upset. And I needed to like rely on the people that have been there for 15 years, you know? So like, true. <laughs> that's who knows and loves me. And I'll always remember like Amy Spencer 
Monster episode we did a long yes. time ago, Finding Your Half Orange. And she had very extreme views on this that you basically <laughs> yeah. should stop looking completely, which I don't know if I fully agree with because I do think you kind of need to put yourself out a little. But she was saying she would like not go to certain events because she knew there wouldn't be single people there. Mm-hmm. And then she's like, wait, why am I doing this? Because if I'm looking for relationships to make me happy, I already have relationships that make me happy. Like, I might yeah. as well have that be an emphasis in my life and then let whoever else comes in come in. And mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of power of that, of not putting so much pressure and so much emphasis on what you don't have, but rather looking at what you do have. It's sort of related to our last week's episode with Ian Kerner about sex and intercourse versus outer course. And if you haven't listened to that episode, the whole point of that episode, I so think, good. is to not put intercourse or sex as the focus, but putting pleasure as the focus. And pleasure can be a whole plethora of different intercourse and outer course foreplay as core play. You know, just listen to the episode. But I feel like finding love is in the same vein where we're so focused on finding love that we neglect everything else in our lives that we lose focus. The focus is not about finding that one single love. I think the focus is to build as much love as possible in your yeah. life, right? So if we don't come into a an event or go to the bars with that focus of like, oh, I must find the one for me, <laughs> then you can see love everywhere. And when mm-hmm. you are fulfilled, that's when you're most ready for a relationship. Yes. When you are so full of love to give. Definitely. Yeah, I think it's a good segue to some announcements but I feel like one of the things that really cracked me up this week was in our Facebook group, Love of the Time of Corona, our moderator Janice always puts up, you know, questions about the episode. It's a way to chime in. I love it. It's like a 360 way to like comment on what's you're probably thinking in your head and hear from others. But a lot of times there's polls involved too, which is really fun for us too, to get a pulse of what where everyone's at and what's going on in the world of modern dating. But she put one up about, so tell me about the last time you had sex, which is the name (laughs) of our episode with Ian Kerner, which is also the name of his book. And the way that we wrote it was, tell me about the last time you had sex with Ian Kerner, because that's the guest. (laughs) It didn't even register to me until someone put that as a whole option. You could add, they're like, I've never had sex with Ian Kerner. (laughs) I do not know Ian Kerner like that. (laughs) It really made me laugh. So anyways, that's our plug. Join Love in the Time of Corona. At Dateable Podcast is our Instagram. You can add to all the polls. Polling is one of our favorite things to do. So, you know, be part of it all. It's so much fun. There's some (laughs) funny things that happen in the group. (laughs) And it's a good chance to put your brunch talk questions, too. That's kind of the other announcement. If you are new to the show and haven't been following for a bit, we have this primary episode that is every Tuesday night, Wednesday, depending on your time zone. It drops at midnight on EST, so technically Wednesday there. But for all intents and purposes, we'll say Tuesday night. And we do this new episode that's you know 20 minutes it's a little shorter than this one it's just a good way to get your weekend going we call it brunch talk it's you know depending again on your time zone but around brunch time give or take and it's a good way to get some of the questions that have been top of mind for folks and you know you can always reach out to us at dateable podcast on instagram we get a lot that way hello at datablepodcast.com through the website like through the facebook group there's many ways to feel these questions 
questions and we love all the ones coming in and it's been really great to do this extra episode so we're um, pumped to get all of your dating sagas in <laughs> we love reading the questions and like you said um, we are going on the off season that does not mean we're going away we will still have episodes every week um, until season 16 15 season 15 don't oh skip God. ahead okay. I know I was like wait what, what are we season 15 I, I say this all the time but I just can't believe it when I, we say 15 and we have a lot of good stuff in store for 15. We've actually been already recording a lot of 15. Oh, yes. We're like a little ahead of the game right now, which is a good place to be for us. But of course, we're still looking for people that have stories. So you can go to our website and submit any of your personal stories or, you know, make a post, DM, all that. You can get in touch with us. We're here. <laughs> Just don't show up at our doorstep. Yeah, exactly. That's the only thing we That's ask. The only thing. <laughs> That's the only thing we ask. Okay. Well, before we get into it, let's take a minute to hear from our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by Kensington Books, and we've got two books to highlight. First up, The Last Mile by Kat Martin. Channeling Indiana Jones, New York Times bestselling author Kat Martin pairs a woman in search of her family's truth with a hard-hitting professional treasure hunter for the second Blood Ties romantic thriller. As an unknown assailant stalks them across a treacherous Sierra Madre wilderness, they race to follow their treasure map's directions to a hidden trove of gold, a novel of taut suspense and danger. Another great book by Kat Martin is called The the Last Good Night. From Colorado's cattle country to Denver high rises and the posh mansions of Vale, a female PI and the rancher who hired her race to deliver justice in this sexy, high octane romantic thriller. Can she find a killer before he finds her? It's no doubt that Cat Martin's tightly plotted, action packed romances are just as steamy as they are thrilling. Find out more about The Last Mile and The Last Good Night on kensingtonbooks.com or wherever books are sold. Okay, let's hear it from Dr. Anna Machen. What is love and why do we love? Those are the, some of the questions we ask, right? And I'm sure we've all talked about it with our friends and our partners, but what is love and why do we love? That is the focus of our conversation today with our guest, Dr. Anna Machen. How are you, Anna? I'm good. Thank you. Thanks for Welcome. joining us all the way from the UK. She's 46 mm -hmm. years old, lives in Buckingham. She's been there for 11 years, originally from Oxford, and she is married. Now, she's an evolutionary anthropologist at the Department of Experimental Psychology at Oxford University. She's the author of a book on fatherhood, the life of dad, the making of a modern father, and her recent title, Why We Love the New Science Behind Our Closest Relationships, really piqued our interest. So let's get right into it because our listeners love talking about science and data <laughs> yes. and numbers and anthropology. So why, in your words, why is love the most fundamental and unquantifiable human experience? It's the most fundamental because without it, we don't exist as a species. So it evolved because we needed it because it infiltrates every aspect of your being, every fiber of your biological being, every aspect of your psychological being, every aspect of your cultural life is infiltrated by ideas about love. And I think it's unquantifiable because however much we know about love from a scientific point of view, which is quite a lot now, mm -hmm. there's always a bit of it we will never be able to touch. And that's the mm. bit that is subjective because I don't mm. know whether what I say is love is the same as what you say is love. 
how you're feeling, right. are they even in the same ballpark? We will never know because I can't experience your love. That's the bit that we'll never be able to touch, which um, I actually quite like that. I think it's good that there's that little bit of mystery left, however much we dig into into you know the science behind it. That's why we want love, right? It's the yeah. mystery <laughs> of it. So there's like growing evidence, you know, that human happiness comes down to the quality of our relationships. And there's Absolutely. been a lot of studies, you know, about being lonely and loneliness is the big endemic and it's more dangerous than smoking and being obese. Mm -hmm. Like, Why do you think this is the case? Like, Why is love so essential to our core being? There's several reasons. I mean, as you're, you're completely right, there's a lot of evidence now about that. Lots of studies are coming out which are showing that, yeah, the key factor in your longevity, your physical and mental health, your life satisfaction, your happiness is the relationships you build with other people. And there's several reasons why that might be. It might simply be that having all those people around you supports you in times of need. So it might be they support you practically they might support you financially they might support you emotionally it's probably because the neurochemistry that's released when you're with them is just so many happy chemicals that it really underpins your mental health and it's the newest angle on this is the possibility that particularly something like beta endorphin which is released when we interact with each other actually underpins your immune system mm. so there is actually a role in in beta endorphin making sure that your immune system is sort of in tip-top shape so those are probably the main reasons why it's linked to all these positive results we're finding about social contact and health going forward and I think also just from my point of view looking at at all the different mechanisms that are involved in love, just because it re it just engages every part of your being. So when you're in love, every part of your being is tuned mm -hmm. to be with that other person, to be as close to that other person as possible. It's actually known as biobehavioral synchrony. And we might talk about that later, maybe. But when you're with somebody else, everything is sort of angled towards them. And I think that's probably got something to do with it as well. It's how we're supposed to be. We are a social species. We are supposed to be with each other. Mm. And speaking of love, I mean, there are different kinds of love. There's romantic love, but there's all kinds of platonic love, familial love, there's animal love. Is there a hierarchy in terms of which kind of love we prioritize? There's definitely one in terms of what we prioritize. And I kind of, I, I, I get a bit like uh, ranty about this. <laughs> rant away. <laughs> so romantic love is definitely privileged. Okay. We place it on top of the hierarchy. If you think of all the messages we get from the media, even from our cultures, the idea is you couple up and you you know you end up with somebody and if you don't do that in your life then you're some sort of lonely sad figure mm. that's kind of how we prioritize it and it's strange because there's nothing biological to underpin that mm. to be honest oh um so in terms of the benefits of love to you you will get those from if you love your friends, if you love your family, mm. possibly even something like if you love your God, we need to do a bit more research on things oh. like that. But certainly it's more like a flat spectrum of different sorts of loves rather than a hierarchy. And that's one of the reasons I wrote my book is because I wanted us to re-engage with that spectrum because a lot of the books that have been written before have been unraveling romantic love. And obviously mm -hmm. that's really mm -hmm. helpful, but they disregard the other sorts of love. And one of the things that makes us human is this amazing array of, of people in beings we can love and no other species does it to the extent that we do it mm. so i definitely you know like i feel like as someone that was single in their 30s when a lot of my friends were coupled up having friends you know filled a lot of that void of loneliness and i definitely agree with that but i can also hear people arguing and you know now being in a couple i do see how it's a little different like you have this person that does life with you more and it's your partner where your friends kind of have their own lives and it's not intertwined as much how would you respond to that would you feel that you know 
is is it still important to find that romantic love or can you do life without it? You can certainly do life without it. I've written recently a lot on things called platonic life partnerships. And platonic life partnerships are all about aiming towards having that companion in life, that person that your life is intertwined with, that person you live Mm. with, possibly even decide to have children through assisted fertility. But it's based on platonic love. Mm. And this is certainly something that's starting to happen more within the queer community, Mm -hmm. um, particularly amongst aromantics and asexual people. but it's something that's starting to spread into wider communities, into the straight community where you, yeah, you want, obviously we want someone to grow old with. We want someone to maybe share a house with, share a life with, share memories with in that very close way. But again, until very recently, that's always been, well, that person has to be romantic. That person has to be a romantic partner. And actually we're starting to think about that in a different way. Is actually, could that person be a platonic person? Yeah. Someone who, because platonic love is very powerful. Mm-hmm. It's very, very powerful. And certainly we know for women if we look at things like emotional intimacy, quite often women are more emotionally intimate with their female mm, best yeah. friends than they are with their romantic partner. So I think we disregard close platonic love, actually. And yeah. it's, it's more about us reorientating our ideas from our culture than necessarily because it's a lesser form of love. So I think what I'm hearing from you is it's less about like romantic versus platonic, but more about someone that's going to be your like life partner and like yeah. intertwine where I think what happens in platonic lo- like love a lot with friendship is it's two people that you know there is a love but they're also on their own paths but I heard like a fr- I don't know some of my friends were joking like we're just gonna go golden girl style and all get a home together and I feel like that you're saying could be could give you the same biological effects of romantic love absolutely and it's something that we have had in history before and certainly some cultures definitely do it but even if I look at like British history in the victorian era there's this this thing of, of of spinsters becoming companions for each other there was this understanding that these spinsters did not want to grow old on their own mm-hmm. um and for what you know then there were very strict rules about you know if you, if you hadn't got married by the time you were 22 then you were definitely on the shelf <laughs> and um so you know so they would become companions for each other and they would grow old together now i must admit for some of them it was a front for being gay um when that was unacceptable but for some it was very much a platonic relationship that they lived their lives together So what do you think is a downfall of, so we observe this, and I've definitely done this myself, is that when you're so focused on finding romantic love, you close yourself off to platonic love, or maybe you just don't work on those relationships as much. What do you think is a a downfall of that is when you're so laser focused on finding romantic love? You're right. I think if you're very laser focused and you spend a lot of your time trying to find that romantic love, and obviously there are so many tools now for helping Mm -hmm. you do that, (laughs) I think we do then start to neglect our friendships. And I think we do underestimate the importance of our friendships, actually, in our society. Um, They're kind of like the backup relationship, you know, the one you fall back on when, you know, you can't find your romantic partner or your your boyfriend or your girlfriend's not around to do something with. I know, I'll go out with my friends. So (laughs) I think we do, I think we do neglect it. And I think it's, again, it's just about a change. And again, that's why in the book I say this is like a whole chapter, which is just about friendship. Mm -hmm. Because I think we need to re-engage with that, that body of people, that group of people, because they are really really important and they're you know they're important not just as maybe a counter to romantic love but for a lot of people counter to family love not everybody gets on with their family Mm. yeah and I spoke to a lot of people who have chosen families and their chosen families are their friends Mm -hmm. and these people are as if not more important to them 
than their blood family. Yeah, I mean, I think even if you don't not get along, but like I know for myself, like I live across the country from my family. So it's just, you know, proximity alone doesn't allow me to be as close to them. I think my biggest pet peeve is when people are like, I'm going to drop all my friends when I find a romantic partner. Mm -hmm. That is, I think, the worst. And I guess like, how do you start, you know, appreciating people and like seeing that value that you're saying that this is just as valuable to my overall my overall well-being and also not even just the selfish side I value my love with this person I think you need to reflect on those relationships and I, I'm as guilty as anybody else of not doing that but for example my relationship with my best friend apart from those I have like with my parents and my sibling is the longest relationship I've had longer than I've been married so yeah. we met when we were 10 36 wow years ago wow and she is still my best friend she actually does live in los angeles she lives over there but i saw her again after two years because of covid a couple of weeks ago and it was just so amazing and it and it it was kind of like really emotional i wasn't expecting Mm. it to be as emotional even with what i study (laughs) i think you have to kind of reflect on that you have to you have to think of the benefits of that relationship one person if you're cannot bring you everything no they just can't in a romantic relationship that's not possible and you need that hint to land of friendship. So I think it's about positively really thinking about what do these people bring to my life? What is it that's different about them? Why do I need them? Why do they have to fit together in the jigsaw of who supports me? And certainly, you know, we know again from studies comparing sort of romantic relationships and best friendships in men and women, actually, that friendships bring kind of an unjudgmental, mm. uncomplicated, relaxing reassurance. Yes. Because the thing about yes. romantic relationships is that there's always a very, even in the happiest romantic relationships, there's always a tension there just a very Mm -hmm. slight tension and that's because you kind of both know even unconsciously that there are there is competition out there if you see what I mean it's conditional love it's conditional there is like if this person doesn't do this a hundred percent I may leave where with a friendship you would never think that you would never think that it's very rare for you to think that I think a friend has to do something pretty awful for you to go actually (laughs) this is we're not doing this anymore so I think from our studies certainly that's what that shows you know women get this emotional intimacy and this and a lot of the women I spoke to for the book it was all about that non-judgmental support whereas maybe their families judged their decisions or you know romantic partners had judged them or not been good for them or whatever it was but their friends had always been there like this rock Mm -hmm. that you could return to and one woman said to me no they've seen me at my worst they've seen me at the most revolting at just the most unpleasant side of my character and they're still here do you believe and because I certainly have seen this in myself is that when you work on love in other areas of your life that aren't romantic it actually helps with romantic love. And something that you you have research backing this up is our love for our pets. When I got my first pet, Mojo, and I talk about him all the time, this was, you know, four, five years ago. I've never felt that kind of love before. And that's when I really opened myself up to find my current partner that I can fully love. So I guess it's a twofold question is, what is the love we feel for our pets? And how do the different kinds of loves affect romantic love? I think certainly, yeah, you can, because again, as you said, romantic love, we some, we might be scared of it, we might have been hurt by it, we might, there might be various things or reasons that it makes us quite anxious. I think the thing about pet love or animal love is it's pretty pure, actually. It's pretty mm-hmm. uncomplicated. <sighs> this thing, I mean, particularly, I don't know, I don't, what is Mojo, a dog, a cat? A... He's a dog. <laughs> he's he's, he's a dog. my son. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, there we go. So he's a dog. Okay, so dogs are amazing because they live in the moment. They are always pleased to see you. And the love they they have for you is unconditional. 
They yes. unconditionally adore you. And it's very pure sort of love. And you mentioned that he's your son. Well, when we put people in scanners and we get them to interact with their with their pets, particularly with their dogs, it what the bits of the brain that light up are the parental bits. Oh. So the relationship we have with our pets is very much a parental child relationship. It's not a sibling relationship, it's not a friendship, it's a parental child relationship. Is that why people do it like in training? Like they'll get the dog before the kids. Oh, I know, I know. Well, I've got my 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 stepdaughter is currently in there. She's got a plant and she's gonna keep the plant alive. <laughs> then she's gonna keep the animal alive. You know, then she's gonna have children apparently. But anyway. Um so yeah, maybe so. You know, can you because the thing about particularly something like a dog which is actually very reliant on you yeah. and very bonded to you and very attached to you and does genuinely love you. We know that. Um, now they are a bit like a child because you have to be there for them they are useless at looking after themselves dogs whereas a cat is you know can deal with it dogs are useless at looking after themselves and that is a pure love and maybe that's why I opened your heart because it's there's no games dogs don't play games no. you know they just want to be with you yeah. and for you to love them and I think that you know I have three dogs and they really are you know the loves of my life I adore them they are just beautiful and they bring something they they bring that absolute just calmness and care you know we know all yeah. the health benefits of being with dogs and being you know and the wonderful neurochemistry you get so absolutely I think other forms of love can show you maybe the different sorts of love and they can feed into a more primary relationship definitely definitely mm-hmm. I'm kind of just like you know tying together some of what you're saying and do you think some of the reason why there's so much pressure on romantic love is that we're supposed to find that one person where with family and friends and mm. pets like it's you were saying earlier like a friend would have to do something really terrible to leave and I think it's because it doesn't have to be the only friend we have you know we have more leniency towards it how do you think love with the one or the way monogamy is set up is is challenging to love. It is challenging because we aren't, as a species, supposed to be totally monogamous. There's actually no totally monogamous species in the world mm-hmm. at all. Even though people go, oh, birds are monogamous. No, they're not. If you watch them, they're always sneaking off and mating with somebody else. So no, they're not. <laughs> so monogamy is difficult and it's mainly a cultural imposition on this biological phenomenon that is love and that is reproductive love. It's very hard because you've got this tension between that social construct that is monogamy and you know most religions preach monogamy most legal systems preach monogamy you know most of the images you see in the media are about monogamy and that's the structure that we base our families on in most you know in most cultures and it's a very powerful message but there's this tension because your biology is not quite pushing you in that direction and also the idea of the one this romantic narrative we have is quite unhelpful because I think it it puts a lot of pressure on there's like there's one person you've got to find (laughs) a person and that's not true it's not like that it's an algorithm like everything else is and there's lots of people out there who will fit you because it's very attraction is very complicated but we have this message of the one we also have this message of that it's all going to be you know sunshine and roses and butterflies and disney (laughs) and all this kind of thing and again it's not it's hard all relationships are hard and all relationships take work and also again within romantic relationships there is a spectrum which goes from polyamory at this end where Mm -hmm. you know you love many people romantically right down to aromantics who don't feel romantic love at all and there is a spectrum and you know again monogamy is one bit of that spectrum and i think we need to understand that we're a slightly more complex species than our cultures would say we were when it comes to romantic love, I think. Do you think love can disappear, can just be gone in a relationship? 
it can. I don't think it happens in an instant. I don't think you can. I mean, some people say, I woke up one day and I decided I didn't love them. But yeah. if you <laughs> if you look at that trajectory that reaches that point, there will have been a general withdrawal has occurred. But yes, yeah, certainly love can completely disappear. Mm. You know, there are two elements. If we look at the biological dimension of love, there are two elements, really. There's the neurochemistry, which addicts you to the other person. Mm-hmm. And then mm. there's the psychological role within that, which is that when we fall in love with somebody, we subsume them into our identity that relationship becomes part of our identity. So suddenly your identity is not single woman, it's person in a couple. And the fact that you're in a couple with that particular person becomes part of your identity and your identity changes because of that. So when you fall out of love, generally, if you are the one that's kind of ultimately going to call the end to the relationship, what you tend to see with people when you observe them is they slowly start to physically withdraw. And it might be because Mm. there's something about the person that's annoying them or, you know, they've both changed too much or whatever. Whatever calls them to be fitting together, they're not fitting together. And so first of all, you get you get this withdrawal of neurochemistry. And that is like going cold turkey very slowly. You know, when you come off like an opiate of heroin, you withdraw slowly. That's what tends to happen in relationships is you slowly withdraw and those levels go down. And you're just not addicted to the person in the same way anymore. Hmm. And then you have the psychological withdrawal as hmm. well, which can mean even if you are the person doing the dumping, as we call it, you still well feel a form of grief. You still like feel some psychological pain because even though you've decided that this is, this is not what you want, you've still got to detangle that person that relationship from your identity and so that can still be quite difficult and then obviously if you're the person who just comes completely out of the blue you had no idea there was a problem and somebody suddenly says to you this is it I don't want to do this anymore then that's incredibly painful because you go from being up here with all your lovely neurochemistry feeling wonderful feeling euphoric all your aches and pains are being hidden by lots of lovely neurochemicals and then suddenly you're right down here you crash Mm. and you go completely cold turkey immediately and that is why if you are dumped it's so psychologically and physiologically painful because one of the chemicals that underpins love is beta endorphin and that's your body's painkiller so when it's gone it really really physically hurts as well and then obviously you then have the psychological grief but when the when the love is gone can you get back the love can you fall back in love with someone depends i think it depends how badly it's gone i think yeah there's always a reverse people always change again people at different you know we all i think know of people who are at different stages of life and maybe right now it's not working and then they meet again in 20 years time and it's like oh actually now we are at the right because coming together is not just about all those chemicals and that that physical attraction it's about all those other things that are also in the mix am I at the right stage of life do we want the same thing do my, right. does my family right. is my family happy with this relationship what do my friends think da, 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 da. So oh my god things. I really want to do my career so there's so many <laughs> different things that come in that at this point this might not be right but in five years time it, it might be or you mm. know you can do a lot of work on yourselves and you can become slightly different people and then that so I don't think falling out of love means it's forever I think in some cases it can come you can you can really or even if you stay together and you're right close to the abyss of it ending you know you can pull it back but I think it takes it takes a lot of work at that point mm. so let's talk about heartbreak for a second because we're yeah. going down that path yeah <laughs> so you know you said it yourself like heartbreak could be completely brutal because you know it's grief and it's playing on our biology and psychology everything aspects of all of it is there a uh, you know a scientific way to like get over it more or do you kind of just need to go through it 
There are certain things you can do. So for example, try not to shut yourself in your apartment and never emerge again. Because actually what you need to do is you need to try and get that neurochemistry from another source. So yeah, fall back on your friends, see them, get that interaction from them. I always say to people, there are many things that produce those neurochemicals, which aren't love. So for example, dopamine. So dopamine is one of the hormones of love. You can get dopamine from lots of other, doing anything you really like. So for example, hugging your dog is really good yes. because you're going to get that hit of neurochemistry from your dog. Eat some chocolate. Chocolate produces dopamine. Red wine produces dopamine. <laughs> All these things. Exercise is really good for beta endorphins. So if mm. you can go out and exercise and, it, and it's a case of trying to get that, that neurochemistry from somewhere else to allow you to withdraw nicely the psychological thing is really hard i think to to deal with and for some people that's just about processing in their own time for other people that is really about talking it through let's really talk it out uh, and that's again when your friends can be really valuable that sort of rock that's always been there you can go um you can go and, and sometimes people find you know reflecting on the relationship you know is it a pattern of relationships am i doing the same thing over and over again okay well if that's not helpful what do i want to do about that so that you know that can be helped but no the psychological bit of falling out of love is generally much harder than the neurochemical bit to deal with do you think that love is relative to our life experiences? Because I think back to when I was even in high school, I was so in love with my first boyfriend. But now looking back, I'm like, was that even love? Yeah. Because that's not the love I recognize today. I guess it's like sometimes we question if we are in love. But I guess if you feel like you are, then you are, right? That's the state of being in love. Yeah. I mean, this is the difficult thing because <laughs> we as humans, if I say to somebody, are you in love? And they go, yeah. I go, okay. And the thing is, that's the as you say, compared to, yeah, that's that. And that again, it's a point I make in my work and in my book is that we can't question somebody else's pronouncement that they are in love. Mm. If that at that moment they say they're in love, okay, fine. Now it could be that later on in life you discover a more intense love and then you go, oh, oh, actually maybe that wasn't. Yeah. But in a way it was. Mm -hmm. Love is not a it's here, it's not here thing. There are different levels of love. In the same way, for example, you know, yes, dogs and people it's a parental child love. But most people, when they have kids, do feel more powerfully for their kid than they do for the dog. Okay, right. So there are intensities of love. So I think it's difficult to say that you weren't in love when you were at high school mm -hmm. because you were in a form of love, a form of your spectrum of love. But the intensity of love maybe you feel later is more powerful. Because there are different, you know, I have two children. The love I have for them is, yeah, really powerful. Mm. And, you know, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm that mama bear who would literally kill for them. Um, <laughs> so it's it's kind of like, and that's a really, but I wouldn't say that then devalues the other love, loves in my life, that love I have for my husband, for example. Mm -hmm. But it's just different. Mm, yeah. yeah, different love. Different sorts of love. I think the most time I've been challenged by the idea of whether somebody is in love is when I've looked at people who live in abusive relationships, mm, so intimate right. partner violence. And I talk about this in the book because I think the darker side of love is important to look at. Talking to people who've been in those relationships, looking at studies of people who've talked about where love is in those relationships. And, and they will say, well, yes, I love, even though the partner's doing awful things to them, yeah. they will say, yes, I love my partner. Now, a lot of people go, well, of course they don't. You know, there's no way because that's just, how could you love somebody who would do that to you? But I don't think you can discount someone else's experience no. and say that's not love. So I want to go into the darker side of love yeah. because, you know, abusive relationships, verbal mm -hmm. abuse, 
abuse is a thing and physical, of course, it's not just physical. And then, you know, there's the deception, the lying, like all these aspects that, you know, is not good things to experience yet. They're kind of maybe sometimes the outcome that happens in some love instances. Mm -hmm. You know, can you kind of describe, I mean, I know every instance is different, but like what happens with someone's like chemistry, like brain chemistry when they're in a situation like this of like, how do you balance kind of the good aspects of love with these parts that, you know, you know, deep down aren't good, but you're still in it. That's really difficult to to unpack, to be honest. It's, I mean, the dark side of love comes from the fact that we are so evolved to look for love and to keep love and to want love. It's kind of like a visceral part of us. And if we don't have it, then we are like half a person. But because of that, because we need it so badly, people can use love to manipulate us. Mm. And we are the only animal on earth that uses love to manipulate no other animal does it. So because of that, you know, you can, you know, the classics, you know, if you, if you loved me, you would do this kind of thing, yeah. which some of us might have said jokingly, but some people say that very seriously, you know, and that's why it can be used to control. And uh, someone asked me about this the other day. We said, well, well, surely that's like maladaptive, you know, because that's actually going to threaten your survival. It's like, well, yeah, no adaptation is 100% positive. And so the vast majority of love is a good thing. But there's this part of it that is negative, that is survival threatening in certain circumstances. It's really hard because some of us are more predisposed maybe by our upbringing in particular to be drawn to people who are more likely to do that to us. And we might be less equipped to recognize it and to be able to go, okay, this is not this balance is wrong and this is not healthy. So it's a really, you know, the question as to why people stay in abusive relationships is a really difficult one. A really interesting study recently, which was done in South Africa, said one of the things that might keep women in romantic relationships, particularly young women who are in abusive relationships, is the romantic narrative and this idea that Mm. we tell them that, Mm -hmm. you know, um, romantic love is difficult and it's a bit like a roller coaster and you have to get over all these hurdles to have your romantic love. And you might have to, yeah, exactly, it's hard and you might have to go again your family's wishes but real love will triumph and all this kind of rubbish (laughs) and we tell people this and so that when they're in this relationship and you know like for example you know the hurdle is actually oh my god I get beaten every day or my family I'm I'm defying my family even though my family are saying this person is so bad for you you have to leave right so the romantic narrative itself is quite unhelpful or the idea that you there is one well my one happens to hit me but this is the one right and you know you hear that there's a very good study of, of women who are in abusive relationships along those lines who say things like you know but I know him and I know who he is and first of all I think my love can change him so they feel there's this amazing power that their love can change this person I can rescue him he's a really good person he's just not understood and I can rescue him and there's all these stories about the power of love and it's really difficult but I think it's something you have to recognize that as with, you know, grief is the price you pay for love, then I'm afraid this, this horrible end, end of it where people manipulate and abuse, using it to trap you is also the price, I'm afraid. Don't you think there's also a biological factor to this? I've read research about how love makes you dumb. I mean, literally clouds your judgment and you don't see the red flags and you just want to see this person for their good and not their bad. Don't you think there's an aspect of that that's just like the narrative aside, we're just biologically also not seeing these things? Uh, and it, yeah, that kind 
tends to happen only though in the very early months of a relationship. So people who've been in long-term relationships for a long time, that that's pretty much dropped by that time. But yes, when you when you are first in love with someone, the bit of your brain which uh, it's called theory of mind, and theory of mind is the ability to tell what somebody's going to do next. You need theory of mind to spot a cheat, to spot a liar, to spot people who are not being who they say they are. So it's that kind of reading mind. Who is this person really? That's known as theory of mind. And when you fall in love, that bit deactivates. So love is blind. It's genuinely blind because that bit stops working. And we were having this chat the other day trying to go, well, why would that? Because that puts you a massive risk, actually. Yeah. Because you can't detect these people. But we were just wondering that if it didn't deactivate, humans are such a neurotic species that we would actually never go out with anyone because we would just <laughs> simply be going, oh, no, they're awful. <laughs> so we have, to, we have to kind of like shut it down for a bit to give us a chance to actually go out with anyone at all, I think. I don't know. We were kind of joking around, but we were trying to work out why, why would it deactivate? But um, it does. Yeah. And it tends, you know, so that's why, you know, you might be in a new relationship, maybe a few months in and your friends are kind of like, really? Because, you know, they're not that great, are they? And you just literally cannot see it. Yeah, interesting. So, okay, what about like unrequited love or, Mm. you know, situationships Mm. where you're really not getting what you want or it's one-sided? Why Mm. do people still feel love towards this person? Do you know what? That's a really good question and we don't really know. And we don't know whether (laughs) any other species experiences one-sided love. Because in one sense... We kind of study this in several different ways. We, yeah, we study people who are in unrequited love with people like, let's say, like in the office or something or at school and you feel this passionate love for them. And it, yeah, it's really hard to know. We, we haven't really put those sorts of people in the scanner yet and done a lot on them. But we do know, for example, if we look at what we call parasocial love, and that is love for like a, a movie star or a celebrity or a character in a book yeah. or even mm. an avatar in a Second Life game, that's parasocial love. It's a crush. <laughs> yeah, it's a crush, Basically, we're not allowed to call it that anymore, though, because apparently no? that, that's not acceptable anymore, no. Parasocial love. And parasocial love is a real thing. It's whether or not unrequited love is a bit like that, is it, yeah. is it is a form of parasocial love. And we are amazing as humans because we seem to be able to love something without having that interaction, without having that physical interaction. It's like religious love. Okay, religious love is really mm. well researched now. And we know when we put people who are in deep religious love in a scanner, so there's been some amazing studies done on like devout Christians like nuns people like that put them in a scanner get them to uh, commune with god in a mystical state and you see the fingerprint of love in their brain so they love god it's Mm. it's a genuine thing and all the prefrontal cortex which is what lights up when you interact with another being with another human lights up so they think genuinely i'm in a relationship and i'm talking to a fellow human but i can't see him i can't touch him i can't commune with him so we are able to do that our brain is able to fall in love with none of the physical presence or activity Hmm. so probably unrequited love is maybe a similar experience is that you don't actually need to get anything back. I was definitely in a situation like this in my 20s where I actually like felt like I was in love with this person, mm. even though it wasn't a real relationship. Mm. And I'm kind of putting it together now. Do you think that I could have just been in love with love? Like, is that a thing? In love? I don't know, you know. I mean, I suppose you <laughs> the fact that you zeroed in on one person is probably unlikely. I think if you were in okay. love with love, you'd just be randomly like... Okay, I just love everyone. Like, I love everyone. <laughs> so I think you probably love that person for a reason. 
reason. There was something about them that attracted them to you. I think you can be in love with aspects of being in love. So we have people when we in the lab who, you know, we always ask people for their relationship history. And you'll get those people who are always just having six month relationship, six month relationship, six month relationship, one after the other. And they are quite clearly addicted to the first stage and the real hit mm-hmm. of lustful right. neurochemistry that stuff because the neurochemistry changes as your relationship goes on. The first stage is, is a slightly different cocktail to when maybe, you know, six months a year in. And there's some people who are just completely addicted to that bit. And they just love that bit. And then when it gets, when it kind of starts changing that cocktail recipe and things start to become maybe less based upon attraction and passion and more on what we would actually call love, Mm. then it's not so much. Yeah. What are the stages of love? Like I know that you go through different stages. There are really two main ones. So we have lust at the beginning, which some people, you know, get a different academic on, you probably get a different answer. But I I don't classify that as love. Okay, so lust is the attraction stage. Lust is underpinned by oxytocin, dopamine and serotonin. It's got a lot of unconscious activity. So a lot of lust is unconscious. It's in the core of your brain. You know, you see a lot of hypothalamus activity because that's where the sex hormones are. And whilst there is conscious contemplation, there's not as much. And then when you move into love, what happens is we introduce a new chemical, which is beta endorphin. And beta endorphin is an opiate. Okay, Mm. so it's your body's heroin. And it's powerful enough to underpin human relationships for decades, whereas the other ones aren't. So we introduce beta endorphin at that point. And passionate love tends to drop slightly and become what we call companionate love. And companionate love is much Mm. deeper. It's what we call an attachment. It's very drilled into your psychology. This is when the person really is part of your identity. You see different behaviors. Yeah, some people, I I think, find that transition quite difficult because maybe it's less exciting. It's much more conscious. So you're Mm. using much more of your conscious abilities your cognitive abilities such as empathy and trust and reciprocity and that kind of thing so Mm. it's it's a very different sort of experience as to the early stages of, of a relationship let's hold that thought for a few messages this episode is sponsored by via we all know there are things that can help set the mood in the bedroom but did you know a little thc could also do that yes via has developed a unique blend of pleasure enhancing cannabinoids libido strengthening herbs and a low dose of thc all into one mind-blowing gummy called high love this gummy wow it will awaken your senses increase blood flow and intensify any sexual experience i been pleasantly surprised by the high love gummies because it is just the right amount of THC for me to have a good time without feeling sleepy. And hey, if THC is not your thing, Via also offers a wide array of other gummies without it. And everything legally ships in 50 states with discreet packaging directly to your door. So if you're over 21, you can get 15% off and a free pack of award-winning Dreams THC plus CBN sleep gummies with our exclusive code DATABLE at ViaHemp.com. That's V I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Let the gummies work their magic. Head to viahemp.com and use the code DATABLE to receive 15% off and one free sample of their sleepy dream gummies. That's viahemp.com and use the code D-A-T-E-A-B-L-E at checkout. Take your passion and pleasure to a whole new level with high love from Via Hemp. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. We are so excited to share with you our new podcast, Exit Interview. Dates don't usually end with a satisfaction survey, and yet we rate everything in our lives, from Uber drivers to local coffee shops. So why don't we do the same thing when dating? We're here to conduct the ultimate romance review, featuring daters hungry for love who have agreed to call up old flames to gather honest feedback. Welcome to Exit Interview. He upgraded himself to business class while I was in economy. (laughs) Wait, what? There's feedback that will make you cringe. She could be a little bit hard-headed, like not reading the writing on the wall. And feedback that will make you swoon. When she said that she had feelings for you. I had no idea. Really? And maybe you'll learn a thing or two yourself about how you can be a better dater, lover, or partner. Obviously, like, knew I was going to learn something. I didn't expect this. Welcome to Exit Interview. Listen to Exit Interview on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's your opinion about this? Because Julie and I always text back and forth about how we're in a love crisis, where I think people are afraid to fall in love because they know there's hurt on the other end of it, or they feel like it maybe maybe takes up too much work. Do you feel that if we are indeed in a love crisis, if we're not working the love muscles, that we could eventually lose the ability to love? Um, I don't think we'll ever lose the ability to love because love is fundamental to our survival. Basically, those people who are finding that so fearful and so and not getting together, I'm afraid those genes ain't going down any any generations. <laughs> Whereas the people who do overcome that, their genes will go down. And you would probably end up with a lot of people who had a lot of genetics which underpin high motivation to find a partner, that kind of thing, which is, is a genetic oh. underpin. So, you know, some people are more motivated to find partners, to be in long-term relationships, to find that they make them happier than others. Mm. That's part of your genetics? Interesting. That's partly of the genetic influence, what? yeah. Very interesting. Okay, so some people are more motivated to be like in a couple than others. Some people find it a much more satisfying and happy place to be. So, you know, I'm afraid those people would carry on down the generations and the other guys who were like, yeah, no, I don't want to do this, wouldn't reproduce. <laughs> I always thought that was your upbringing more than your genes. Do you know what? It's a really difficult and complicated relationship. Oh. One of the biggest studies we ever did at Oxford was on the genetics that underpin love. Wow. And it's a really complicated relationship. So no, your, your upbringing is really important particularly because your upbringing um, really influences the structure of your brain and influences things like how much gray and white matter you have in relationship areas of your brain, your baseline levels of neurochemistry, for example, that kind of thing were affected by your upbringing. But there are certain things that also have a genetic influence. And then there's this really complicated environmental genetic relationship. So for example, the oxytocin receptor gene, which underpins oxytocin's ability to operate within your brain, has... 26 point mutations on it and each of those 26 point mutations have an influence on your love relationships 
Okay. So that underpins a lot of the variability we get between people. The the biggest thing that interests me in love research is why we are all different. Mm -hmm. So what makes us different? Mm. Um, And part of that is, is your genes. So there is a part of that part of one of those point mutations influences how motivated you are to be in a long-term relationship. Interesting. I feel like we always talk about attachment, but we don't ever talk about like the motivation. Really, really important. Attachment psychology, all that critically important and really will influence how you behave in a relationship, how you'll feel in a relationship. So your attachment profile is really important, but your genes are also have an influential role to play. And sometimes they both interact with each other and then it all gets very complicated. But yeah, your genetics are, are a really interesting area. That's fascinating. What are some ways we can awaken our love muscles or ability to love. I mean, I thought I wasn't able to for a long time. The last time I said I love you was in 2009. And then it took another almost 10 years for me to say I love you again. And for all those years, I thought I didn't have the ability to love anymore until I got mojo. So are there ways we can just awaken those senses more? Do you know what? I think it's about being more self-aware. So it would be interesting Mm. to know during those 10 years what your attachment profile was. Mm. It sounds like you were probably an avoidant personality. Oh, for sure. A little bit. Oh, yeah. Um, So that's always how. And I always say to people, if you're comfortable, find out what your attachment profile is. Because I think for a lot of people, it really helps them understand their behavior. Mm -hmm. And if you're happy with your behavior and how you feel when you're in a relationship, great. Go with it. If you're not, attachment profiles can be changed. It can take quite a lot of work. But like, for example, one of the things that changed for you, you've got a dog. Okay, maybe suddenly you can't be avoidant with that dog anymore. You have to be there for that dog. You can't just decide you don't want to be there. And that's starting to change your attachment profile. My attachment profile, when I met my husband, I was anxious, really anxious, preoccupied, had high anxiety about being abandoned, Mm. was really clingy, nightmare person. (laughs) He's secure. And uh, I am now secure because I've been with someone who disproved all of my fears Mm. And I'm now secure. So you can change that. So that's always really important, I think, in exercising those muscles. I think trying to maybe practice some of the behaviors which make you more open to letting people in. So emotional vulnerability is really important in finding Mm. relationships and also maintaining them. So we know that people who are more emotionally vulnerable, more willing to share sort of their deepest thoughts and fears and feelings about something are much closer to the person they're in a relationship with than those who cannot do that. Mm. And so it's always about exercising that bit. It can be really scary, but you know, there are, you know, sets of questions that we give to people to try and help them do that. Starting at, you know, really gentle levels of, of emotional intimacy and vulnerability right down to something that's really quite intense. And you can and you can slowly work your way through and slowly open up that bit of you that allows that person in. So there are things you can do that can certainly yet yeah, exercise that muscle and also find the love that you want to have. Right. Yeah. It might not be that actually romantic love is your thing. Right. It might no. be that dog loves your thing or friendship <laughs> loves your thing or God loves your thing or, you know, so mm. look at the full spectrum and think, well, yeah. actually, what kind of love do I want in my life? Interesting. Well, it's so fascinating that love is so different for everyone, you know, and, you know, that's what makes it hard, like you've said, too. (laughs) And on UA's example about, you know, taking 10 years to say I love you again, like, I think this is a prime one. I know we put a lot of weight on those words, I love you. But some people have no problem saying I love you. You know, sometimes it can be said in a month where others, you know, it's a struggle. It takes years to actually mutter those words. Does that just all come back to like your biology or how you're raised yeah. or your okay? It's, it's a really complicated. There's never one thing about love is it's really complicated. There's never one answer to any question. So it kind of 
partly it's what you believe love means. Mm. Okay, so what do you think love is? Because we all define love in a slightly different way. Part of it is how we were brought up and how we were shown what love was. Part of it is cultural. There's been some amazing studies. And again, I talk about them in the book about asking people in different cultures to answer the question, what is love? Yeah. And you will get really, really different answers. What are some that you've heard? Yeah. So, for example, if you ask about love in somewhere like Russia, not a good choice, but Russia, <laughs> the Russians, love is actually quite a difficult, hard can be quite a negative feeling, can be about um, distress and abandonment. They're kind of, yeah. So love is not necessarily this joyous thing and defined in Russia. It's a difficult thing. If we look at some, for example, some Kenyan cultures, their love is very much tied to God. So love is a spiritual thing. Love is about being on a higher plane. Love makes you closer to God. It puts you on this higher moral plane. So it's very tied to religion. Mm. If we look at somewhere like Brazil, love is the family. Okay. So love is about loving your family, providing for your family, turning to your family first. So it really depends where you come from. It's first of all, what you think love is. It's a major cultural component. Some of us are more able to be emotionally vulnerable and say it. Others find it a really scary thing to say. And that might be, again, because of what your experiences of love have been when you were younger. Maybe you loved somebody very much maybe you loved your parents very much and you didn't feel that that came back so you know there's lots of reasons why people and some people just don't put a lot of weight on it for some people it's Mm -hmm. not a very valuable word right to be honest it doesn't mean that much so that's always difficult i know i'm not a therapist but i know therapists talk a lot about love language to the extent that okay what do we both mean by love because it could be you mean completely different things Uh, and it's about trying to work out you know what we actually mean when we say love what about the word falling in love like that phrase how do you feel yeah. about that i could see you cringing <laughs> no, I mean, falling in love is fine you know because in a way it does feel like i mean maybe the falling bit comes because it is such a rush yeah because the neurochemistry particularly for some people is such a, a euphoric high all of these chemicals are made to make you feel euphoric and high and happy and all of these different sorts of things and so i think for some people particularly people who maybe exist at quite a high level of them it is a rush it is a falling you know you feel slightly out of control you know particularly because that theory of mind bit has turned off you know you're not you are out of control you can't quite assess what is going on so i think falling in one sense is maybe just somebody trying to explain what the hell it feels like when you get this rush of of attraction you know for other people you know it's it's more of a slow burn isn't it some people get that rush and fall in love they think immediately others it's it takes much longer to realize that actually i am attracted to this person and i you know i do like this person that's interesting you say that because to me falling in love is a transitional period of when Mm -hmm. you're not yet in love but isn't it that you're either in love or you're not (laughs) is there an actual (laughs) period of like maybe i'm not Maybe I am. No, I mean, love grows. <laughs> love certainly grows. But again, it's about, we have no absolute definition for love. It's interesting that you ask that. When I do a lot, I do a lot of public talks about love and I quite often get asked <laughs> kind of like for the timetable. So yeah. if I meet this person on this day, at what yes. point, you know, does this happen? And then what point does this happen? And then what point do we transition from attraction and lust to love? And it's like, <laughs> well, there isn't a day. There's no day. It doesn't work like that. Everyone's different. Some people fall hard and fast. Other people, it takes a really long time. There's no absolute because your experience of love is multifactorial. There are many mm-hmm. different things that feed into it, which are unique to you. So we can never say that day you weren't in love, that day you, you were in love. I think people who say, oh, I woke up and I knew I was in love. I think they've just come to that conscious realization. You know, their, bio- yeah. their body and their mind have been doing a lot of stuff behind the scenes. 
When you're in a long-term relationship, are there ever days that you're just not in love? Like, could that just go away for a day or an hour? (laughs) Like, how does that work? (laughs) Yeah. So there's a difference between being in love and experiencing love, I think. In love is a very active thing where, you know, you stop and think, yeah, wow, I really do love you. And certainly, you know, there are days when I look at my husband and go, I really do not love you today. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever reason. But love, I think the problem is we, we... misclassify love as an emotion love is not an emotion okay it's not even a secondary emotion it's just not an emotion love is a motivation it's like hunger and thirst okay so if you speak to a long-term couple and you say to them are you in love they'll go yeah but they don't feel love all the time in the same way you don't feel thirsty all the time you don't feel hungry all the time you feel those things when they are in short supply so you might feel Mm. a desperation for love in a long-term relationship because you've not been with the person you're in love with Mm. and there's some really interesting new work on this that love is actually a fundamental life need so there's a thing called maslow's pyramid of needs and right Mm -hmm. down the bottom are things like food water shelter okay and then above that we have security so the ability to feel and be made safe and then up there Maslow this was 1940 by the way but Maslow placed relationships and love in the third tier as a psychological need well we now know that actually it's a fundamental physiological need if you do not have love in your life particularly let's say as a baby you don't Mm. have love in your life that causes a lot of issues and it's highly highly detrimental to your survival and your health so Mm. actually love is a fundamental life need it's a motivation it makes us do stuff but it's not something that's always being experienced all the time because it doesn't need to be experienced all the time. You know, what mm. about, okay, in today's world, people are getting married later, if at all, mm-hmm. choosing to maybe not even have relationships, not having children. You know, we talked about it up front is that love can come in different ways if you have friendship and family. Is there a world where you could have zero love? And like, what does that mean for our species if that continues? Or do you believe like you'll just continue to find it in different ways? I think we continue to find it in different ways. I There is a real individual variation in this. Some people really do not require many people in their life. Mm. Um, And that's partly an attachment style. They're dismissing avoidant. It might be that they live at very low levels of neurochemistry. It could be a genetic underpinning. It could be something, again, that's come from their childhood. And there are some people who are very much islands. And as far as we can tell, they don't seem to suffer that much detriment from being like that. So it is a spectrum in terms of how much people are loving and the number of people they are loving. However, I always say to people to have absolutely zero love in your life is a really, really bad idea. Mm. really bad idea and the main reason behind that is because of that very strong statistic now between love relationships and mental and physical health and longevity Mm -hmm. and all that kind of thing we know that people who don't have love do suffer detriment we know particularly children who do not have love are set up for a tricky life not it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be really hard but they are much more likely for example to not be have the skills to deal with relationships when they're older so it's kind of like a lifelong issue they're much more likely to suffer issues with addiction they're much more likely to have mental health issues they're much more likely to struggle in social contexts so having zero love i think is a is a tricky tricky thing and it's a very risky thing to do so it is a case of finding that love where it might be it might be that you find your love volunteering in your community mm-hmm. so it, it may be quite a high level but you find it with lots of different people and you find it with that process of helping others 
Right. You know, it mm. might be something like that. It might be that you're not into like really intimate, like two people relationships, but there's something about being within your community, for example, that you feel loving. Or you might, yeah, just be absolutely animal obsessed and have all these <laughs> other animals or whatever it might be. Yeah. You need that. You do need that interaction with something else as a human. Love is important. I think that's the main message we're taking away from this. It's actually a basic need. And going back to romantic love, what advice would you give to couples or people dating where they feel like like the barrier to love is the three words, I love you, who says it first. We hear this, you know, from our listeners. It's like, <laughs> I don't want to be the one who says it first. Then I've lost this game of love. I mean, for my partner and I, it took us over a year to say I love you. And that took a lot of drugs because we were so afraid to say it to each other. What advice would you give to people who are just afraid to say it first, even though, even though they feel it? I think try to lessen the importance you place on it. I know that's really hard. But it is three words. You could be saying completely different things when you're saying it. And I actually think you read people by their actions more than whether they say, I can't remember when I said I love you to my husband. <laughs> no idea. It just, I just don't remember it. I really don't. And that's not what you remember. What you remember, I mean, I've been married for like 20 years. What, uh, what you remember is, is what that person has brought to you, what they've done right. for you. So I think try and don't get so hung up on it and also please don't see love as a game it's not a game no mm -hmm. so all these books we get out here Ugh, you know saying, so oh you know you Terrible. have to wait this many days before you you know message back and you have to do this and you have to do this it's like it's not a game it's two people who have to find a way to fit together and ride this journey right yeah and that's going to be really individual to you. So please just go with what works for you and don't mm. try and see it as a game. I think if you see it as a game, you've got a problem because it's not a game. Yeah. It's, it's a relationship. It's a give and take. It's, you know, it's a moving, you know, living being. And you, you kind of have to look at it that way, I think. Yeah. And what about mm. for the people that are feeling like they're giving up on love? You know, like mm -hmm. I think what you just described is actually the opposite of modern dating. You know, it is yeah. more of, yeah. you know, we, we try to minimize this on this podcast, this game, because we fully agree with you. But we've been drilled for years about how you play this game. And, you know, you also are kind of like courting each other and only showing your yeah. best sides. So then when things don't work out, there's this feeling like things aren't matching up or I'm not destined for the real deal. What advice would you have for people that have almost given up? First of all, I would be like, if you really, really want romantic love, then please don't give up. If you aren't that bothered, but you just want some sort of love, find another one on the spectrum there are yep. many different sorts of love i would say yeah dating apps the whole thing they have they have gamified it they've kind of made it as something else we can do in a really efficient way which you know we can just tick off our list and we just flip we flip we flip we, flip, we go okay you know we might you know i've talked to people who've had like four or five dates in a weekend yep. not given anybody really more than like 20 minutes half an hour to decide whether they want to be with this person just stop Okay, yeah. because the thing about human love is humans were designed and evolved to love in person for a start. So I always say to people, dating apps are fine if you if you see them as a tool. You need to control them, not them you. Yes. So you need to set yourself some rules. Okay, so you need to say, I will have a f certain number of like messages with this person, and then I will decide I either see you in person or we forget it. 
Because otherwise mm. what you get stuck on is messaging, 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 and never meeting them. And right. you don't allow your brain to do its job. Your brain is the most amazing dating algorithm. Okay, it's really good at taking loads of sensory information and deciding whether or not this person is for you. You cannot do that through a screen, okay? There's no way you can do that. The other thing it, it handicaps you with is that ability to spot a cheat or a liar. All those really good skills yeah. you have, that <laughs> those you can't use them online. They don't yeah. work. You need to be in the room. You need to use your instincts. Okay, is this person like genuine? Is this person I want someone I want to go further with? And you have to, I think, try not to prevaricate too much. The trouble with all this amazing op- opportunity of all these different dating apps and is you always feel there's something else out there and maybe something better. It's called the paradox of choice. Yeah. We are mm-hmm. not evolved to take decisions based upon picking so many different things. It's like, ah, mm-hmm. I can't actually. <laughs> so again, it's about maybe taking more time, deciding again, set some rules. I'm not going to just constantly flip. I'm not going to prevaricate. I'm just going to take a decision. And if you can, give them more time. Okay, mm. People are a little bit obsessed with, Quite often what I will hear is I didn't get that chemistry. Yeah. I didn't get that feeling. 50% of cases don't get that feeling. Yeah. Okay. There is no instant chemistry going on there. What it does is that's just one aspect of attraction, that instant chemical feeling. And that's that unconscious algorithm in your brain, which is lust, which has gone ba-ding. Um, <laughs> and getting that chemical feeling does not actually predict whether you will have a long-term relationship with that person. That's just lust. Okay, guys, mm-hmm. what you need to do is realize that for some people, it takes much longer. You might be the kind of person who's actually more drawn by someone's brain. Yeah. What are they going to say? What are, are they funny? Do they read good literature? You know, do we have a lot in common? What do they talk about? Actually, the brain is the sexiest organ in your body. So for some people, it takes much longer to get that chemistry than those initial 10 seconds. So give people space and time. And and maybe we've kind of made it into a real chore, I think. Yeah, it's a job. Yeah, it's a job. And I think maybe the apps have made that happen. I think maybe if we can step back and reevaluate that a little bit and say, you know, it it shouldn't be a chore. It's not something on your tick list to go, you know, by the age of 30, tick, you know, (laughs) I've got the partner moving on to the next thing. It's, it's, you know, try to, if you can try to chill a little bit about it. Definitely. Well, I love that the brain is your big, <laughs> your best algorithm. I think everyone needs to live by that. Yes. And sexiest organ, those two. Yes. <laughs> sexiest body part. <laughs> I mean, this conversation has been so incredible. I mean, there's so many takeaways. I think the first one that comes to mind for me is that love is everywhere. I think, you know, we do, there's this, un, you know, I'm not going to argue. I, th- I think romantic love is wonderful, but also the love that you have with your friends and family members and pets, everyone, that all deserve the same amount of recognition almost. And, you know, we hear so many people that are on this quest for romantic love that it's like, I don't need to spend time with my friends. I need to just go date after date. But I loved uh, the conversation we had too, like you even you say by getting mojo, it helped open yeah. me up. And I think the more we could let love in in different ways, it one, reduces the pressure to find that romantic love. So you'll likely actually probably find it faster because you don't have all your eggs in one basket in the need of just having this. And then second, it just makes you more of a lovable person. So your energy is attracting people that recognize that value. So I think that's the biggest thing I have is that love comes in all shapes and forms. And, you know, instead of focusing on what we don't have, let's focus on what we do have and build up that abundance. Other piece too is just that we all experience love differently. And that could be person to person or even us in different time periods. And I love there's no right or wrong. And I've definitely been here before too that I'm like, did I actually experience love with my ex where I thought he was the one? But compared 
to my current partner, it's not. But it, it's good to know that like it's just a way that you're evolving and your definition of love is evolving. And you need all these experiences to get you to, you know, love the way that you're meant to love. So nothing is wrong in terms of love. It's more of how do you see it and what value can it bring to your life? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, my big holy shit moment was the fact that our predisposition to love can be affected by so many factors, including yeah. our genetics, which just proves that we can't be on other people's timelines for love. Yeah. It's not like I went on five dates. I should be in love. We should be saying we're in love now that we're six months in. It's like we're all so wired differently that we have to listen to our brain and our heart and our gut of when we feel like we are in love. From our conversation, Anna, I just feel like we often talk about finding love, but love is not something we can find. It's not something we can just go on a website and be like, I'm looking for love today. I feel like <laughs> love is something we need to feel. And in my example, again, with Mojo's, the moment I felt the love was the moment I found love. And so maybe we can kind of switch up our verbiage a little bit. That like, I'm not here looking for love. I'm here to feel love. And we can feel that love in so many different aspects of our lives. And it's not just romantic. And I love love this idea of not having a hierarchy of love and not Mm -hmm. placing romantic love above the other kinds of love is just a spectrum. And we should not should. I don't want to use should. But we can always encourage ourselves to feel the spectrum of love instead of prioritizing that romantic love. Absolutely. You got it right there. Well, thank you, Anna, for this conversation. If people want to learn more about your research, where can they find you? Okay, they can find me. I have a website, which is just animation.com. I'm on Twitter. And uh, yeah, and also say so there's loads of articles and podcasts on the website. And obviously, yeah, Why We Love, uh, my new book is out in America too. So yeah, yes. it's all like summarized in there. It is fantastic. So definitely recommend reading it. So thank you. Fabulous. The kind of love that we love feeling is a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. We truly (laughs) feel that love. And it's it's romantic. It's platonic. It's every kind of love that we could possibly feel. So if you want to show us some love, you can go into Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating and review. And we will always reciprocate that love. That's not a one-sided, unrequited love at all. No unrequited love. (laughs) We definitely reciprocate with good content and awesome guests like Anna. So we're going to wrap up this episode. Dateable. The Dateable Podcast is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Want to continue the conversation? First, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter with the handle at Dateable Podcast. Tag us in any post with the hashtag stay dateable and trust us. We look at all of those posts. Then head over to our website, datablepodcast.com. There you'll find all the episodes as well as articles, videos, and our coaching service with vetted industry experts. You can also find our premium Y series where we dissect, analyze, and offer solutions to some of the most common dating conundrums. We're also downloadable for free on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Overcast, Stitcher Radio, and other podcast platforms. Your feedback is valuable to us, so don't forget to leave us a review. And most importantly, remember to stay dateable. Stay dateable. 
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.